It was better doing it. It was better covering it this way than the way we normally cover the first round. So, what's the normal way? Uh, we do all the same things and we watch all the games, but we don't get to present it to people in that manner. Sure. I mean, this was almost like, you know, watching the game with, with, with Frank and Pat, like you're, you know, people who who know the game, and you guys were definitely keeping it low key and loose. Yeah, yeah, that was huge to start to get a couple stops on defense, especially in the red zone. That's a huge momentum swing and uh, gives the defense a lot of confidence. I don't know. I think I got some experience just playing in the rain on bad grass fields back home, but this, it was nothing like this. It was, it was uh, definitely a, a change of pace. The game of football has changed a lot, but it's still some tenets of it still remain the same. And, you know, usually the more physical team wins, and, and especially up front, and I felt like we did a really good job today of doing that. We're not trying to be a second-half team. We're trying to play 60 minutes of football, uh, but uh, I think that, you know, we, we dug ourselves a little bit of a hole here today, and um, I was real proud of how our kids did play in the second half. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys, occasional guests, lots of audio clips talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. Largest division with the largest playoff bracket. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. I'm not the guy in charge of the bracket or in charge of number one playing number four. My co-host, Keith McMillan, he's in charge of the... No, sorry. He's been here for every expanded playoff bracket as well, though. Here's where, if the podcast were sponsored by Keith, Keith would be waxing poetic right now as follows. Yeah, I'm Pat's co-star, co-host, and the only person on the Quick Hits panel who correctly forecasted Washington and Jefferson winning in round one. But I also thought Illinois Wesleyan would win by three scores. So it was that kind of playoff week. Some expected things happened, and some unexpected things happened, probably more than in a typical first round. Our podcast this week is sponsored by FanRays, hassle-free online apparel store creation to help you manage your gear and fundraise for your program. And yeah, it was a day in which the elements reminded us how crazy things can get in the vast majority of Division Three's geography in the third week of November. And uh, we saw a little of everything. Uh, steady snow, accumulating snow, lightning, rain, standing water, and uh, oh yeah, 16 football games to cut us down from uh, the final 32 to the final 16 and a lot of good ones as well. Uh, it was a day in which we had a lot of fun whipping people around from game to game on our Bracket Blitz show, uh, even with the usual first-round blowouts. Uh, there were a bunch of great games, uh, surprising games, notable ones. Keith, I know you put together a quick list on Twitter, and for those who might be in need of a reminder, why don't you run down your list of most impressive wins from Saturday? Yeah, I'll do that. Um, you know, you don't often get to hear the phrase, uh, we had a lot of fun whipping people around. It's not too late to whip it. Yeah, this was, a, this was a really great first round, and the wins that stood out to me were uh, in order. Uh, Case Western Reserve beating number 11 Illinois Wesleyan by 28 points. Obviously, the uh, rain-turned second-half snow was a big factor in that one, but also I think we just thought that Illinois Wesleyan had played such a tough schedule that even though uh, the statistical profile looked pretty similar to Case Western coming in, uh, we just... I just thought they would, uh, you know, they would sort of be uh, outmuscled and, and overwhelmed. So that was the big surprise. Frostburg also winning by 28 over 12th ranked Wittenberg. Uh, Linfield winning by two touchdowns against uh, number five Harden Simmons. Linfield was playing at home, but we thought um, as a matchup of of two top 10 teams and uh, two that had not had 
the quarterbacks that were under center on Saturday, those quarterbacks had not been starting for a, for a full season in Wyatt Smith and Landry Turner. So uh, we thought perhaps there there that would be a, a more offensively challenged game. But uh, Linfield's offensive line really controlled uh, defense defensive line too. I guess uh, both lines controlled Harden Simmons, and so that was my third surprise. So yeah, uh, Case Western, Frostburg, Linfield, and then the fourth one was uh, Husson's upset of uh, 19th ranked Springfield. Springfield was 10 and 0. Their triple option offense had been uh, cranking all season. They've been scoring like mad. They also hadn't played a, a tough schedule, but Husson uh, didn't necessarily qualify in our eyes as a tough first round opponent. So that was uh, quite the shock. And and Husson did it to Springfield with ball control, which was uh, unexpected. And then I think the fifth spot's up for discussion. I'd, I'd like to hear what you think. What uh, what stood out to you, Pat? But the I think I personally. For the um, the other most shocking standout win, uh, maybe shocking is not the right word, but I, I'd go with North Central playing without one of its best players, holding top 10 St. John's to 0 for 10 on third down and advancing to round two. But uh, you certainly could make case for some for other games. Yeah, I think you could. But I think this is the proper list of impressive wins, um, you know, North Central doing it to a top 10, a top six team. If you were kind of compiling it by PowerPoints or what you might earn in, I don't know, the Massey ratings or another computer-based uh, ranking system based on uh, the games on Saturday, that's a, a game where you certainly uh, get, get yourself a chance to move up. Linfield also, uh, you know, they, they won that game 27-13. It was a game that wasn't that close. It was 21 nothing at the break. It was 27 nothing early in the third quarter. Um you know, uh, Harden Simmons got on the board on a on a long return, but was never really was never really in it. Frostburg, craziness. We'll talk more about that game coming up also. And Case, I don't think I picked Illinois Wesleyan by three touchdowns, but doesn't really matter. I didn't pick a whole lot that was particularly good on Saturday, so um, I don't even want to look back at my picks. Uh, you've compiled them for me, and uh, I will stipulate to those. Um, so. Those were the impressive ones. There were certainly eye-popping numbers in other games against lesser opponents, but uh, on the impressive list, we have a game that was spotlighted by a key play call and another game that belongs more in the exciting category, turned on some play calls as well. The one everyone was talking about first off on Saturday was in the Frostburg State-Wittenberg game. Frostburg State leads that game 21-7, and the Bobcats have gotten there with a couple of timely plays. Uh, interception on the first play of the third quarter leads to a touchdown a couple plays later. So midway through the fourth, Frostburg's backed up at its own seven-yard line and brings in uh, Dante Chinnery to punt. Wittenberg brings the house to try to block it, but the punt never happens. Chinnery scampers 93 yards for the touchdown. Perhaps the ballsiest call of the day in any game, and here's Coach Delane Fitzgerald's take. It was a combination. Not my idea originally, but then I run it through the special teams coordinator and make sure he's okay with it. Here, here's the, the, the ballsy part for myself and the, and, the, and the special teams coordinator is we run it two weeks ago and got stuffed. So we had shown it on film. But the time, the last time we punted, we knew that we were only going to have to block one person to get the edge. And, and we thought Dante would read it right. And anyway, and good call. Lucky call. So this is gutsy. The situation, fourth and seven from your own seven with a two-touchdown lead and eight or nine minutes left, is not the safest. You don't get the seven yards, and you basically gift your opponent a score, probably a touchdown in a two-score game. But the reason why it's genius is because nobody sees it coming at this juncture. Generally, when teams are punting from that spot, it's not so tight that the punter's normal steps are compressed, 
and a block is more likely. Generally, they're worrying about fielding the ball and taking advantage of great field position. In this case, Wittenberg had the block on, trying to get uh, maybe some points out of out of uh, that field position. But also, uh, they're just going to field the ball at that point and, and, and try to work with a short field. Sometimes fake punt calls can be automatic based on defensive misalignment or, or um, something that you see and um, the punter have, has a green light or the up back has a green light to call it. Um, sometimes they're optional. This one, however... Uh, as uh, you heard the coach talk about uh, Delaney Fitzgerald, had failed for Frostburg a couple weeks prior, so that makes it an even gutsier call. You risk letting a team that has scored one touchdown to that point in the game uh, get a score on you if you don't make that. Um, but I think when you see they have the block on, um, you know maybe that's when you know um, that this fake punt works. And then once you break through that first line of defense, um, because there's only one guy back, you know, it turns from a, it's not just the seven yards you get for the first down. They, they went uh, the whole 93 and then pretty much uh, closed the door on, on Wittenberg's chances of a comeback. The other big call we want to spotlight and talk about here early on in the uh, uh, podcast is Franklin coach Mike Leonard's decision, go for two and the win in the overtime at Wartburg. And for that matter, also to bypass 20-yard and 26-yard field goal attempts in the third quarter and fourth quarter. Neither the fourth down attempts nor the two-point conversion attempts succeeded, and Warburg won 35-34 in overtime. Here's what Leonard had to say. I, I get my gambling. I, I can't stand Vegas. I can't stand the craps table. I can't stand any of that stuff that I hear other people talk about. And I just, I love gambling on fourth down with players like this. Mike Leonard is one of my favorite people I've met along the way covering Division Three, And I think the call probably makes sense if you met him or the calls, I should say. Uh, He's a much nicer, more folksy Pete Carroll. He thinks of everything and the impact it will have. So he makes that decision, and I'm assuming it's uh, all his. Uh, We on the outside look at it in a vacuum with the coach, with the team who knows his players and whether they'd want to go for it. He knows his kicking game. He knows how his team is playing that day and can best judge how would fare in a second overtime or beyond. Personally, I think putting your season on the outcome of one play is an ill-advised gamble, but I like it under two circumstances, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts for longtime listeners. Uh, If your team is spent and you don't think it would outplay the opponent in additional overtime periods, you go for the win. And if you have a two-point play that you practice a lot, it usually works, and you haven't shown it on video all season, that's that's another uh, reason to go for it. So I think if those two circumstances are in play, uh, then you do it. Uh, I read in the Waterloo paper, I guess, um, that uh, Franklin had a trick play dialed up. Then during a timeout, changed its mind. The uh, Grizzlies threw a fade to a six foot four, two hundred fifteen pound senior wide receiver. It's about the best option you can you can get for a fade. But I think that's a great play on second and goal from the six. Uh, with the season on the line, I'd likely kick it, play the second overtime, save my great two point plays for the third overtime period and beyond the chance to spend another week with your team is just too precious to leave to a low percentage plays but those are my guidelines and my preferences the coach in this case mike leonard is the one who has to live with the outcome uh, going forward or all off season and whether the outcome is good or bad in my experience players almost always want to go for it so any coach who has the full backing of his players and, and who can go into the off season being respected by those players for having the guts to make the calls that he made um, should absolutely do it and if you spend all season preaching to your players, go big or go home, and then you go big, I think you can live with yourself when you go home. 
Keith, I probably have like 15 minutes of unused footage from the On the Road series back in August, uh, our time on Franklin's campus. Most of it, uh, a tour of Franklin's campus via golf cart. Here's just a, a short snippet that I think gives both the folksy quality and the uh, part where you're talking about, about thinking about everything. So three oh, hours. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, three hours from now. One of my big pet peeves in the world any trash laying around anywhere on this campus. This is home, especially on our turf. I'm not going to blame anybody. We have a quote on our team called, to blame is to be lame. Store that away, Keaton, okay? <laughs> to blame, and there's a lot of blame in this world. If you haven't, I don't know if you watch news. Do you know news? Okay, there's a lot of blame game going on. Sometimes people got to You've heard the thing about this, Keaton? Mm -hmm. If you're pointing fingers at somebody, there's three of them pointing right back at you, you know? Anyway, sorry, August flashbacks. Where were we? Well, let's just wrap up. This was a uniquely good round one, as demonstrated by how hard it was to pick, how hard it was to choose what to lead the show with. We had those two great finishes, three major upsets, two games where a top 10 team was guaranteed to be knocked out of the tournament. And a partridge in a uh, pear tree. <laughs> I mean, Barry got its first playoff win, as did Husson. Case Western Reserve got its second. On the flip side, it wasn't a great weekend for everyone. Five teams got shut out. Chapman scored a touchdown on the last play of the game. That probably wasn't even really a touchdown, mm -hmm. trailing by 50. And Eureka scored but once in the fourth quarter against St. Thomas. So it, it wasn't a wonderful weekend completely across the board. What's worse than playing in the rain or the snow, being on the sideline, not playing, watching your teammates get shut out, in the rain or snow. You're as cold as ice. It was a great time to play ball control for sure. Even in places where the weather wasn't as much of a factor, teams rolled up huge time of possession and just plain kept the other team off the field. Wittenberg's offense didn't get the ball much, nor did Springfield's or Mountain Union's. And uh, when the snow became that big factor at Illinois Wesleyan, Case already up 7-0 in the first half and then up 14-0 early in the second, it became nearly impossible to catch up. When you know weather is coming, make sure you get your points before the conditions deteriorate. I think that also just demonstrates what a grab bag uh, the first round of the playoffs can be because there are 16 games going on. They're going on across the country. Different weather conditions, different matchups. Uh, different, you know, we had um, quarterback that we thought was going to be unavailable ended up playing. We had three, I think three major running backs who ended up being unavailable that we thought would play or we didn't know weren't going to play until you, you, you know, the day before or till we realized they weren't playing on the day of the game. So uh, there's so many variables that, that go into all this and uh, it's all happening at once. You know, nine games kicked off at, at noon, another six kicked off at one Eastern time, noon central time. And then there was the, the one game on the West coast. So it was uh, quite a, a grab bag and that's part of what made it fun. It certainly wasn't a great day um, for, for anyone who attempted to forecast how this first round would go. Um, as we do every week on the podcast, we take a look at our predictions from the previous Friday and quick hits. China, come on out and get you whooping. And in uh, this week, we predicted scores and uh, not even going to attempt to say who was the most correct uh, score predictions because some of them were, were way off. For instance, I had Trine beating Monmouth 1916. Technically, that's straight up correct. I picked the correct winner, but that was a 63-24 game. So it really wasn't a, a very good pick. But um, as far as uh, who got 
you know, at least games right. Frank and I uh, hit 12 out of 16. Ryan Tips, Adam Turr, Greg Thomas hit 11. Pat, you had 10. Logan Hansen odds. We had his uh, model included with our picks on Saturday. And he gave win percentages for each game. And uh, those only 10 teams who had the uh, greater win percentage won. Um, the D3Football.com poll, 11-5 and five in the first round. The team that was uh, ranked higher had more votes. Uh, St. John's, Illinois, Wesleyan, Wittenberg, Springfield, and Harden-Simmons all lost. And then uh, the selection committee, I guess if you consider the home teams as the, the, their picks, uh, that they went 13 and three. Case Western Reserve, Frostburg State, and Husson all won on the road. Uh, the other three 13. The other 13 winners were uh, were home teams. Kudos selection committee. Um, I mean, uh, I should say, <laughs> other than the fact that you kind of matched up some of the wrong teams together, but you got those all correct at least. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was a reason for the big um there yeah, is. I, guess, uh, I can see that. It's like, whoa, hey, wait. Yeah, you're right. Because it, in all honesty, I don't think North Central and St. John's should have had to play in the first round. I don't think um, Harden-Simmons and Linfield should have had to play in the first round. Right. We know why. Um, in one case, geography. Uh, in the other case, you know, St. John's is in as a Pool C team. So even though we view them as a top 10 team, uh, they come in uh, on, on the in the bracketing and in going by playoff criteria. They may not stack up the way they do in the in the top uh, twenty five poll. So even that, we throw that in there for context. Yeah, but, uh, even but that is it. even that is also geography. Actually, um, Monmouth could get to St. John's, but uh, Trine couldn't get to St. John's, so that bracket could not be lined up in a way that would be more equitable. You would we would have Trine and north central or trying in st john's and then monmouth and st john's and monmouth at north central but uh, geographically that wasn't possible given the 500 mile limit and i'm assuming that also explains why the winner of that game the, the north central st john's game is playing oshkosh instead of uh, balancing that quadrant by putting <laughs> uh, maybe one of those games uh up uh, where where uh, oshkosh would be maybe and sure. having North Central and St. John's play, say, like uh, the Chine Monmouth winner. Yeah, yeah. that would It would be nice if that were the case. But I think in that case, they just uh, disagree with how things should be seated. Well, all right. In any case, on Saturday, round one of the playoffs, um, a handful of ranked teams' seasons ended. And it, it's, it's you know, in one, one case, it's or in on one hand, it's sort of hard to believe. On the other hand, you know, Playoffs are going to match up some significantly ranked teams, and uh, and some teams are are uh, seasons are going to end. So fifth ranked Harden Simmons out of the tournament round one. Sixth ranked St. John's done. Uh, number eleven Illinois Wesleyan upset by Case Western Reserve. Number twelve Wittenberg upset by Frostburg. Nineteen Springfield we talked about also upset by Husson. Number twenty one. Uh, Johns Hopkins, not an upset. They lost to uh, Washington Jefferson, who was ranked 14th. And then Warburg, we talked about with, uh, with certainly Franklin had a chance to beat Warburg. They survived the two-point conversion in overtime. The Knights were ranked 17th. So it, um, it, this tournament is, is really brutal because the first couple of weeks, it'll take us from 32 teams down to eight. And uh, a lot of really good team seasons end with just one or two playoff games. I think, though, what that means, it, it, 
I think it shows how good this opening round was. It was exciting. It was unpredictable. And I'm not sure we can ask for much more. Uh, all right. And uh, for the second time this year, we were pulled away from the on-field events and forced to dig through arrest records and court dockets regarding a national contender in Division Three football. Yeah, we should address that after the midweek arrest on a traffic stop that turned up an outstanding warrant from when he was a juvenile in Florida. Mountain Union quarterback D'Angelo Fulford started on Saturday against Washington Lee. The Purple Raiders didn't need much from him as he was four of nine passing, ran for 20 yards and a touchdown as well. If uh, the Purple Raiders had believed the player was truly in the wrong or if they'd wanted to take a stand, they could have sat, out, sat him out and still beaten WNL. So one has to read into Mountain Union's choice not to pull him. As to what you read, I'll leave that to you to determine. Yeah, I don't like the choice. I really don't. Of course, I really don't like not knowing what the situation is uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the legal situation. But it just looks bad. It doesn't reflect well on Division Three. I spent some time chatting with a couple of uh, Mount Union alums, people who have followed the program religiously over the course of the years, and they're not happy with it either. Not knowing any particulars of the case against Fulford makes it difficult to form an opinion on what's appropriate. And all I see is that it looks bad. It looks bad to start him just days after that outstanding word came to light. Definitely not a YD3 moment. I, I do think you're right that it's hard to judge without knowing um, the, the particulars of the case. And as we said, though, Mountain Union, they had an easy out here. They could have started uh, Luke Porman, um, who's played in, in a handful of games this season. Dom Davis is still on the roster. Um, they have the quarterback from Kentucky Christian or wherever he's from who's played in games as well. So uh, I think they probably could have gotten away with it and looked good. But it also probably says that they believe something that, that – um, Maybe the rest of us uh, don't necessarily know or, or believe that they have uh, they had the players back in the case where, you know, maybe uh, it's either a very minor infraction, something that they felt was in the past and should have been dealt with and just happened to pop up because he, he got a traffic stop. So in any case, we will see more of Mount Union going forward and certainly more of D'Angelo Fulford. I should take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored this week by FanRaise. FanRaise is an e-commerce platform that provides hassle-free team merchandise shops for athletics programs at thefanraise.com. Online stores cost nothing to set up. They never close. You can have over 125-plus unique pieces of apparel and accessories. They ship all their orders directly to customers, so you never have to sort through or coordinate a bulk order again. Um, it's great for fundraising, so they match the profit share model is great, and you can... Sign up for your free store at thefanraise.com. Keith, we really want to get people to our uh, store at uh, FanRaise as well, especially because I understand there might be some shopping coming up this week. I don't pay a lot of attention to that stuff in November, but I think that's a thing people do. It's true. The day after Thanksgiving is widely known as Black Friday. Um, so that means if you're going to do a whole bunch of that this year and you got a big uh, Division Three fan in your life, check out the, uh, the D3 store. Not only can you... Um, get shirts with with our logo on them and help support what we do and, and help uh, represent out in the community. Uh, there's the whole brand new talent runs deep uh, hashtag and shirts. Uh, D, there's um, the whole the D3 talent store. Basically, check out check us out at the fan raise um, and remember that you're not only supporting us, you're supporting uh, the folks from fan raise who are also homegrown uh, D3 natives. And this is the time of year where a bunch of coaches obviously don't have a game for a few months. This is the time where you're dealing with that kind of stuff. 
maybe you take a day off. Then after that, work on your online store for next year. Let them take care of everything for you. You don't have to worry about all that stuff. It's time for game balls, Keith. And this one's been a tough decision, even though only 16 games to really work with. Um, but first of all, as I'm getting my post-game work done at St. Thomas after the Bracket Blitz show, Tommy's coach, Glenn Caruso, was talking about the other crazy stuff that went on around the bracket. And he said, your game ball has to be that kid, right? He's talking about WJ kicker Mauricio Garibay, the guy with the 46-yard field goal to win it with a minute left against St. John's. Uh, and since I'm a, a big proponent of giving one game ball. One ping only, please. That's the guy I'm going with. One guy who made one play to win his team the game. By far his longest attempt of the, attempt of the season. In fact, he's a guy WJ was using for PATs and field goals earlier in the season, but lately has been used just primarily on kickoffs. A uh, huge 46-yard field goal that was just as long as it needed to be, no longer, as it hit off the crossbar and went through with under a minute left in a 31-28 win against Johns Hopkins. Well, 46 yards was the length of the field goal, 48 yards was how many uh, yards the, the player I'll give my game ball to had gained in the regular season. This is Case Western Reserve running back Aaron Aguilar. He had nine carries for 48 yards in the regular season. And Illinois Wesleyan, the opponent on Saturday, had only allowed one rushing touchdown. They also had famously uh, caused uh, had a couple of goal line stops against UW-Whitewater back in the beginning of the season. Uh, the Titans had played the much tougher schedule, so even though Case had been dominant throughout its schedule, consensus wisdom favored Illinois Wesleyan. Then enter the weather, rain in the first half, snow in the second half, and the five foot six, 182-pound Aguilar in completely unexpected weather turns into completely unexpected 27-carry, 136-yard, three-touchdown, five-yard per carry performance as the Spartans won 28-0. Pat, you guilted me into giving only one game ball, and I'm fairly <laughs> confident that's what I want to give it to you. But honorable mention, Linfield's offensive line, which uh, when I was watching the Harden-Simmons game seemed to be doing whatever it wanted against the number 5-ranked Cowboys. And another backup running back who had a big day, but uh, we'll talk about him later on from North Central. We're going to go around bracket by bracket, and uh, we'll start with the bracket with the highest concentration of really good teams. That's the Mary Harden-Baylor bracket. Uh, you know, the crew, the defending champs, no trouble with Chapman in the first round. St. Thomas, no trouble with Eureka. Barry, as mentioned before, first playoff win in program history. And uh, then, yeah, two good teams that should not have faced off in round one did. Uh, Linfield comes away with the 27-13 win. Keith, uh, the selection committee, they managed to eliminate the entire state of California uh, and Alabama. They managed to eliminate uh, half of the teams from Texas, knocking out three of the teams that might have had to fly. They missed knocking out Husson, which they could have done. That was a bracket we suggested a couple years ago. But anyway, game to talk about is the one in Oregon. Yeah, I, I really think it was, uh, obviously, because it matched up two uh, top ten teams, but also because the winner of Linfield, Harden-Simmons, is playing Mary Harden-Baylor, the defending champions. Um, and that's a rematch because it's Linfield. That's a rematch of a game earlier in the season. And then the winner of that game plays the winner of St. Thomas Berry. St. Thomas right now ranked number four in the poll. So you could be looking at a situation where either number eighth ranked Linfield or number one ranked Mary Harden-Baylor uh, after winning this game, whichever team wins, has to go on and face another real powerful opponent. So this concentration of of really good teams uh, makes this part of the bracket stand out 
And really what stood out on, on Saturday was uh, Linfield. Just, I thought, from not just from when I watched, but from people who were, who were watching um, you know, the entire game and people who were there on site tweeting live from, from the game, uh, controlled both lines defensively, offensively, and I thought Harden-Simmons had shown, and I, I guess I fall for this every year, I fall for the Harden-Simmons thing where they have a 9-1 record. They look pretty good against uh, Mary Harden-Baylor, and I think, man, if, if you know they get in the playoffs and uh, they're able to turn it on, they, they're going to be a team to be reckoned with, and they go out in the first round again. And uh, in this case, it, it was really all praise due to Linfield, uh, except for a uh, punt return that they allowed in the third quarter to Reese Childress. They basically put the clamps on Landry Turner and the Cowboys offense. Uh, they moved the ball, maybe not whenever they wanted offensively, but certainly consistently enough uh, on the ground. Uh, it wasn't like uh, Linfield of old where they would just have to spread out for for wide receivers and, and chuck it down the field. They really had a pretty consistent uh, running game. And uh, it was just an impressive win. I, I think folks were probably a little down on Linfield because it had struggled offensively, particularly uh, had to uh, score in overtime to beat Pacific Lutheran. And uh, we just didn't know exactly what to expect out of that offense, but uh, got a very strong performance on, on Saturday to go with a defense that has been uh, great all season. And now you look at that rematch uh, against Mary Harden-Baylor and think, you know, obviously that was back in week one and, and these teams are, are quite different. But it's, uh, it's, 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 Linfield might have a real, it's not just a thing that you say during the season. Oh, well, we've grown a lot since, uh, since we played them 10 weeks ago. This is actually a very different team. Both uh, both those teams will be different. Both will be starting uh, different quarterbacks than they did in the first meeting. Uh, people out there are super excited talking about Linfield now uh, about Wyatt Smith. Smith, a quarterback, he's the son of quarterback, uh, son of coach Joe Smith. Uh, and you know, it's no coincidence that the offense has turned around since he's been put in the lineup. Yeah, and and he's not a guy like you look at Sam Riddle, who was um, division your scholarship level talent who came back home to Oregon, ended up at Linfield, but had the body, had the big arm, uh, and had the, you know, the smarts and the personality. Uh, Wyatt Smith is not nearly that big a guy, but um, Coach's son is a huge thing. The players rally around him and play for him. And I thought the most important thing that stood out to me on Saturday was time to throw. Just kept the offensive line kept Harden-Simmons' bodies off him. And when, especially for a young quarterback who clearly a smart kid knows where to go with the ball, if he doesn't have to worry about you know guys falling down around in his his knees, uh, he can step into those throws, make the correct decisions. And then uh, quarterbacking these days is uh, a lot of it is also making the the right reads on run plays because there's so much option in everybody's offense. So uh, pulling the ball at the correct times uh, as well, I think. Guys who make good decisions, especially in D3, don't have to necessarily have big arm, be 6'4", 210 pounds, and, and, ha- and be able to huck it down the field. Uh, you know, you make good decisions, you take care of the ball, you're able to run for a few first downs. Uh, I think you can, you can put a spark in, in your offense, and, and that's what's happened so far in Linfield. Linfield definitely reaping the benefit uh, of having its offensive line healthy for the first, maybe for the first time all season, not this week, but over the course of the past couple of weeks. The other 
A uh, semi-competitive game in this part of the bracket was between Barry and Huntington. Barry making its first playoff trip and defeated Huntington by the score of 34-20. to 20. Before we dive into talking about it ourselves, let's hear from Coach Tony Koncheski about it. Well, they're an explosive team in general, and certainly on offense. Um, you know, it's, it's you know it'd be remiss to not mention the fact that their starting quarterback, uh, you know, was out. Uh, so that certainly hurt them. Um, you know, he's he's a guy that you know waited in the wings for three years and then got a shot his senior year uh, and had a shoulder injury last year last week against Lagrange. Um, <clears throat> but it's it, it be, I don't we didn't ever thought their offense was going to change. Uh, it is it is pound the football. Uh, with three really good running backs, and then certainly go up top to uh, Otis Porter, number two. I mean, he's a special receiver, uh, and he made some some special plays today. And, and trust me, we were we were very well aware of where he was, and he still made some plays. Um, but we did a great job, and I think they had 45 rushes for 60 yards. Um, you know, I think Trey alluded to it. Um, you know, we focused all week, uh, and kind of the mantra was. Uh, to win the game up front, uh, offensively and defensively. Now, you know, you can look at stats. Stats tell you one thing, um, you know, that we gain a lot of yards rushing. No, but, I mean, it's the yards per carry. And we set, set ourselves up, for the most part, with second down and manageable, third down and manageable situations on offense. Uh, maybe not as much in the second half. But, uh, you know, I told the guys before the game, the game of football has changed a lot. But it's still some tenets of it still remain the same, and you know usually the more physical team wins, and, and especially up front. And I felt like we did a really good job today of doing that. Keith, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about the matchups coming up. But obviously, they're going to face a really physical team up front on both sides of the ball in St. Thomas next week as well. Uh, you mentioned Mary Harden, Baylor, Chapman. Uh, I believe the consensus is among uh, about 99% of the people who are in attendance and uh, weren't on the Chapman sideline that the final play should not have been a touchdown, a uh, essentially a shutout by Mary Harden, Baylor. And then on the other side of the bracket, uh, St. Thomas beating Eureka handily. Uh, Lee Anthony Reasonover, the guy who had all those great carries against uh, UMAC teams down the stretch over the course of the regular season, had 10 carries for minus nine yards in the first half and got some of those yards back in the second half, but uh, no match for the Tommies up front. Yeah, I think you, you see that happen uh, actually with a, with a few teams across the bracket where there was a guy who stood out you know, Chapman was a great example of it. Ricky Bautista had been uh, great for them as they rallied to the Skyac title. And you figured, all right, Chapman's not going to go to Belton and beat Mary Harden Baylor, but they might put up a couple touchdowns. There was a a um, Skyac game that that uh, Mary Harden Baylor played a few playoffs ago where uh, they trailed at the half, or they were down 16-14, and that and, you know, and they end up coming back and winning. Um, but at least, you know, the teams put a scare into them. And, and you saw with Lee Anthony Reasonover, we saw with uh, Michael Whitley playing for Lakeland, and you saw with uh, Ricky Batista for Chapman, players that had just been outstanding within their leagues. Um, you just It gets to another level in the postseason. And sometimes if you draw one of these top teams, Oshkosh, Mary Harden, Baylor, St. Thomas, uh, even your star guy is not enough to carry you. So looking at what's coming up next week, we've got Barry coming up to play at St. Thomas. And then we have, as mentioned earlier, Linfield is at Mary Harden Baylor. Um, we've already mentioned uh, the neither starting quarterback will be the same in the Linfield Mary Harden Baylor game. That's started, those starting defenses are going to be pretty much the same, though. 
Yeah, and, and they've been uh, both dominant all season, uh, pretty much starting with that that uh, first meeting very early in September. It was a 24-3 Mary Harden-Baylor win. Linfield and Mary Harden-Baylor, not just a marquee matchup uh, of, of next week, but uh, a matchup that has a lot of recent history, recent playoff history um, between them. There was, uh, you know, Linfield has rallied to beat Mary Harden-Baylor when it uh, with a backup quarterback. Mary Harden-Baylor finally got over the Linfield hump uh, on the way to, to building towards winning the national championship last season. So those two teams have a ton of history. But I think more than we would have suspected midway through the season, this one will actually be a little bit about the quarterbacks. Wyatt Smith, we talked about. Also, uh, Carl Robertson the third. Uh, earning some praise in in, uh, in, in Belton by the, uh, the the fans and keen observers there who uh, watched him share snaps with Kyle Jones and with uh, TJ Josie uh, earlier in the season. He's a freshman, a, a highly touted local guy. Pretty much everybody uh, at Mary Harden Baylor is recruited out of Texas, but uh, but he is is uh, now now the guy. It looks like so a couple of quarterbacks to keep. Uh, their eye on next week, as well as those outstanding defenses. And I, I think in the other game, Barry at St. Thomas, really the important thing for Barry is to not psych itself out. St. Thomas obviously has the pedigree, been to two stag bowls in, in the past few years. Barry just played its first playoff game last weekend. So they, there's already that. St. Thomas is a, an not quite like playing at Mary Harden Baylor with uh, with the the stadium being something that you don't see in Division three, but it's a really it's a really nice place to play, maybe uh, somewhat intimidating. And then Barry already on Twitter joking about the cold. Um, it obviously is cold in colder in Minnesota this time of year than it normally is in Georgia. But you get you got to get over all that stuff and, and realize that as the team that's not expected to win, you go up there, you got nothing to lose, you play loose, you got at least one more game with all your teammates, and and you know roll the dice and let's see what happens. Moving on to the Mount Union bracket, and that is the bottom left hand bracket on your uh, bracket. Uh, two underdogs in this quadrant, one by four touchdowns. Yep. Mount Union surprisingly won only by three. WJ won by just three points on a game-winning field goal, which hit the crossbar and bounced over. Weather a big factor. Heavy rain in Alliance, Ohio. Uh, snow is what it became in the second half and at halftime in Bloomington, Illinois. Weather affect the game, Keith? Yeah, I mean, the quarterbacks in uh, in the Case Western Reserve, Illinois Wesleyan game, completed 33% of their passes. And we're now in an era where uh, 65% is probably uh, average completion percent percentage. Um, the Spartans, though, got a hold of what the weather was going to be like, changed their their traditional game plan, which is usually based around the passing of quarterback Rob Kuda, uh, committed to the run, played great defense, and uh, pulled one of the big upsets of the day. We heard a little bit from Aguilar in our open. Let's hear a little bit more from him and from Case Western Reserve coach Greg Debelak. Uh, Aaron, you had nine carries for 48 yards for the season coming into this game. In your wildest dreams, could you ever, ever have imagined having such a big role in the game? Uh, no, never. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, I was just glad that I could come through for my team when they needed me. It looked like you had a lot of footing out there. Uh, was the footing, you know, 
did you have good footing out there? Maybe where some guys are maybe slipping and sliding and stuff like that. Uh, surprisingly, yeah. I don't know why. I just think I had it in my mind to play slow, maybe a little slower. Just make sure I had my feet under me before I tried making my cuts. Now, are you from California originally? Uh, yeah, born and raised in California. How do you run like that in the snow if you're from uh, California? I don't know. I think I got some experience just playing in the rain on bad grass fields back home, but this, it was nothing like this. It was, it was uh, definitely a, a change of pace. Uh, Coach, uh, could you just talk about Aaron's performance a little bit, just what, what he was able to do, and especially with, like you said, your 1,000-yard rusher kind of goes out early in the game? Yeah, I, I don't think it was a surprise to anybody on the team. Um, Aaron had a, a few carries, but he has five touchdown catches. Uh, he's a very versatile back, um, and, and we knew if, if something happened that he would be more than an adequate replacement. And, and you know, he runs – he's very low to the ground. You know, he, he runs with pa low pad level, and that's what you needed today. A guy like that, so um, you know he's just the right guy for for the for this circumstance. You know the other impressive thing about the way Case Western Reserve won, uh, not just adjusting its game plan and, and getting a career day from a uh, reserve running back, was uh, another great day from special teams, and, and just shows how well rounded the team was. Uh, obviously a great day on defense whenever you, you, you put up a shutout. But special teams, uh, senior safety Cody Calhoun blocked a punt, and we've now uh, made the Spartans become synonymous with blocked punts after the way they uh, blocked their way into the postseason. Um, they also just kind of made the heads-up plays. Uh, not just uh, – this was actually goes back to the special teams. Uh, Justin Fan had a 33-yard uh, punt return, but the uh, the heads-up play, the tipped tip ball catch by uh, – Joey Spitali, 26-yard reception in that game. And then one of Aguilar's touchdowns actually came on a play when, when Rob Kuda fumbled. Aguilar uh, picked it up, rumbled into the end zone, and, uh, and scored. So I, I think Case Western Reserve can be proud that it, it's um, been opportunistic and it's also been really sharp in, in all three phases of the game, uh, in not just down the stretch of the regular season, but in this playoff opener. And they'll need to be uh, next week at Mount Union, which didn't play its sharpest game in round one, but also has the, the same excuse. The, the weather was, the, the rain, uh, you know, the, the field uh, was sopping wet. And I think Mountain Union gets up a couple touchdowns in that one and, and probably uh, to some degree plays it safe um, but you know by not throwing the ball a whole lot, but also um, you know had to deal with uh, with a, a, a defense that was uh, had a fairly decent day for, for WNL. So quite uh, quite an interesting uh, matchup, actually a little more interesting than maybe we uh, suspected it would be. So you saw a lot more of that. Illinois Wesleyan case game than I did. I only saw a white screen. I saw parts of it. I also read a lot about that game <laughs> and uh, followed um, Bob. Uh, Bob Quillman. Yes, who follows uh, Illinois Wesleyan basketball generally on Twitter, but was uh, was watching the uh, the, the football game, uh, I believe, from Dallas and uh, w was enjoying it. So anyway, I, you know, it, it's hard to follow. Uh, so many games at once, but you try to peek in on on as many as you can for a short uh, a portion uh, of them. But yeah, when you did look in on it, Pat, as you pointed out, there were points in that game in the second half where you, you could see um, they were shoveling. Like uh, if they were on the thirty, they'd be shoveling the twenties. You know, in between plays, uh, they were just 
trying to keep ahead of the uh, of the snow. Uh, we talked a little bit about Wittenberg Frostburg space, but there's a lot more to be said. Well, yeah, it, it was uh, it was overcast at Wittenberg. The rain held off until after the game for the most part, uh, and it was uh, not a storm, but Frostburg State that blew through Western Ohio and left with the stunning 28-point victory. The Bobcats, as you alluded to uh, much earlier on in the podcast, held the ball for 40 minutes, uh, had a 385-60 to 60 advantage in rushing yards, and pulled off the 93-yard fake punt, and then held off a rally when Wittenberg narrowed the score to 21-7 and drove the ball inside the five-yard line. So uh, all around, pretty good game for Frostburg. And it's I felt like it was difficult to determine whether that was a case of stronger conference runner-up beats weaker conference champion in the case of uh, the NJAC and Frostburg. and the North Coast in Wittenberg, or if Wittenberg just didn't match up well or had a bad day. But I believe keen observers saw Frostburg as a possibility to play three playoff games uh, this season, given where it stands uh, in in the bracket. And and to be honest, both of the teams uh, considered to be the last in the tournament, Frostburg State and Case Western Reserve, advanced and will play again next week. Well, I think that's one of the things, right? The the last teams into the tournament are not the worst teams in the tournament. There's they're just the lat, last at large teams, and often those are five seeds and six seeds uh, that are teams that certainly have a, a chance to advance. They're not uh, they're not the seven and eight seeds. Even though Frostburg State would have been the seventh seeded team out of this bracket, which has a lot of uh, a lot of teams bunched between two and seven anyway uh that game also spotlighted by one of the things that's a, an unfortunate uh, byproduct of being in division three wittenberg's top running back deshaun sarley didn't play because of injury not something that's known until game day not that wittenberg would have chosen to run more or would have had been uh, more successful against the frostburg defensive front but it's an option that they didn't really have on a day where the wind was blowing 20 plus miles an hour yeah so wind a factor snow a factor rain a factor uh, just all across the board, uh, things that, that teams didn't necessarily prepare for affecting these playoff games. And I thought, I think that's what made this uh, round one so fun. It wasn't just the upsets or the weather alone or the the you know backups having to step in and play big roles, but you wrap all those things into one, and it was uh, a pretty good start to this postseason. Uh, beyond the Mauricio Garibay 46-yard field goal, uh, at the W&J Johns Hopkins game, Alex Rouse back a quarterback for the Presidents after missing a couple weeks with injury. 36-61 passing for 391 yards. He did throw three interceptions, um, but uh, Johns Hopkins threw two of them right back. Uh, Jordan West had a great day at running back, a, a guy who's been uh, in and out of the lineup for the Presidents this season. Uh, Presidents with their, their kind of three-headed monster in terms of receivers, Jesse Zubik, Nine for 114, a couple scores. Brandon Barnes, nine for 103. Cody Hurst, eight for 101. Are going to present uh, these guys are going to present a bit of a different challenge for Frostburg State next week than uh, what Wittenberg did. Yeah, but the f- people who have seen Frostburg State over the course of the season ha- have uh, really liked their speed, like the like their defensive line, and um, you know that's the two ways you can slow down a passing attack, right? Pretty good guys in the secondary. And also um, guys who can get after the quarterback. So I, I, I think it's still hard to to forecast quite how these two teams um, match up strength-wise. So we can you know we can take a look at how 
uh, how one runs their offense and you know how that matches up with what Frostburg's done to date. But it, it's just hard to get a read on how strong the NJAC was and how good Frostburg was this season. I think they're a real variable in this tournament. But I also think that game at WNJ with that uh, high-powered offense, experienced coaching staff, you know, been in the playoffs a ton of times, I think that's um, probably one of the better games this coming weekend, and there really are a lot of good games. Yeah, and those teams just 94 miles apart. I'm very familiar with that drive. Um, and there should be plenty of Frostburg State fans, I would assume, making the trip up to Washington, PA. Uh, the other game, Keith, we have to assume, I guess, that D'Angelo Fulford's going to uh, start for Mount Union. He's not doing court in Florida until December 20th. Um, so I, I guess this is uh, a case Western Reserve can go block some punts, I suppose, and make this a, a short game or weather could be a factor. Do we think that if the teams are playing straight up on a dry field that there's a, a chance that uh, Mount Union doesn't win this game? Wow, do we do we think there's a chance they don't win? Right. Um, Thanks for uh, unpacking so that, and, the double negative there. Yes. Right. The answer to that is no. We think they we think there isn't a chance. Moving on to the UW Oshkosh bracket. Top left, Oshkosh wins big. Trine pulls away and wins big. North Central uh, wins 17-7. Wartburg wins at the end because, well, let's start with that game because that was the game to talk about. Well, uh, I guess we spent a lot of time talking about Wartburg and and Franklin. Um, We spent a lot of time talking about Franklin making... uh, Franklin making play calls. Uh, Warburg, uh, talk, come back to them a little bit. Uh, you know, Franklin makes the the choice to bypass those two short field goals. Uh, Warburg comes up with a defensive stop both times, and in a game that was 28-28 five minutes into the third quarter, then uh, it's 28. Yeah, I think that's right. It basically was a yeah. defensive battle for the rest of the way. Yeah, and and playoff games can can go like that. We saw it um, at Wesley and RPI as well, where it was – one type of game for uh, a little more than a half, and then Wesley turned it on. Trine Monmouth. That was actually a close game for a while before you know. You look at the final score, you, you think Trine was was killing them all day, but that was a good game for a while. So um, it's super coaching cliche. Say it's a sixty minute game, but I think it is important, especially in unfamiliar um, surroundings against unfamiliar teams, to not panic. When your team gives up a touchdown, you know, if you're on defense, uh, the first thing to do, coach will bring you back to the bench and, and ask you, what are you seeing out there? Uh, a lot of times, um, especially defensive linemen, they'll, they'll get a, they'll, you know, they'll get a different read on, on what offensive lines are doing, that sort of thing. And they'll start to figure it out over the course of a game. So uh, it was nice in Warburg's case uh, after, you know, if you're, if you're a Warburg uh, fan and, and you're watching this game going, man, they're, Franklin's just going up and down the field on us. And then all of a sudden, they turn in a uh, great defensive performance in the last 20 minutes or so, come up with those those two big stops when uh, Franklin goes for it on fourth down. And then to win the game on a defensive play must have felt really great. In the open, you heard from Warburg defensive back Peyton Imhoff. He was the defender on that two-point conversion pass for Warburg against Franklin. Here's a little bit of Knights coach Rick Willis's postgame thoughts. Uh, you don't have time to really have too much of a reaction at that point. You're, you know, you're sitting there with one play to determine the game. Uh, you know, unbelievable, really. Um, just relief, you know, thankful, you know, that, uh, you know, we lost a game out here last year on the exact same situation. So I was hoping that the odds were going to be with us today. Rick 
with how well they were running the ball there in the second half, especially, did you feel like they were going to come out and with some kind of you know a special you know, gadget run play there on that two point conversion? It's hard to predict what that play was going to be. To be honest with you, I I, I did uh, remind uh, the defense coach Winner reminded the defense that you know it's not automatically a pass. They could run the ball here, uh, so we were trying to be alert to. Basically, we just had to be on high alert, be ready for anything. So, um, you know, you don't have tons of information on the opponents um, in a playoff game, and you have no history with them. Um, you know, so it's it's a little hard to to know. Coach, pretty crazy game. Each team running 81 plays, but it was uh, your defense that obviously made some some big plays when you had to there in that second half. Just your thoughts on how those guys kind of answered the bell on on a day when when it was pretty tough for both defenses. Yeah. Well, it was about getting stops. You know, you had to get stops, and, and uh, in the first half, there weren't many stops. And, uh, you know, both both defenses stepped up and got some in the second half. And, um, you know, I, I think you have to give both the defenses a lot of credit. I'm proud of our defense for the way they fought. Uh, that's a great offense. Um, we knew they were a great offense coming in. Um, I think they're a better offense right now than I thought they were coming in, you know, even though I knew they were going to be a good offense. Keith, the North Central game, defeating St. John's by the score of 17-7, featured Dominic Mugalu in for Austin Brunig at running back for North Central. We're hearing Brunig might be done for the season. We might not see him the rest of the playoffs. Um, And he looked uh, really good against a a defense that, you know, St. John's defense has been fairly highly touted this year. Only four and a half yards a carry, but uh, one of those guys who was a workhorse on Saturday, 40 carries for 180 yards and the touchdown for Mugalu. Yeah, and that became a low-scoring game between two teams that have been great offensively but also really good defensively, and the defenses took control. Uh, Mugalu, um, 180 yards and a touchdown for uh, for North Central, and to to go from guy who gets a few carries, uh, same way Aguilar did, to guy who gets most of the carries uh, in the biggest game of the season, I think is... Um, one of those things you can you can really be proud of when you're because coaches will always give you this speech where it's you know you never know when your time is going to come and you got to be ready and I think some guys take it to heart and some guys it's in one ear out the other. Mugalu clearly took it to heart and I'm sure he would credit that offensive line as well because the St. John's defense is uh, it was really good was was playing really well late in the season as well. So uh, I think that's a that's a pretty impressive win from. Two teams who I, I still uh, I've said it like four times, but I, I still ag- agree that they uh, should not have been playing in the first round. St. John's just never got the ball to Evan Clark really in this game. Two catches for 51 yards. The guy was the most talented receiver up in this part of the country, and they just could not figure out a way to get him the football. And that's that's where the offense really stagnated for the Johnnies this year. Yeah, and and it, they didn't score in this game till the fourth quarter. And I don't think that North Central was defensively uh, dominant. Uh, you know, they certainly had points this season were were pretty good. Uh, had a great game against Illinois Wesleyan. Had a not so great second half when they had to come back on a Monday against Wheaton. So for North Central to to, to put up a game defensively where it held uh, it held St. John's to seven points is uh, perhaps encouraging for them going into next week when they're going to have a heck of a challenge on their hands with the uh, uh, UW Oshkosh offense. 
Yeah, that's another fantastic second round game. Um, we'll talk about that uh, coming up in just a second. Uh, before we leave, trying Monmouth. Uh, you mentioned it was a, a close game early. It was back and forth all the way to halftime. Trying takes a 28-24 lead just before half, and then it was all trying second half. And I didn't get a chance to watch uh, much of that one, so I don't know why it, it got blown open. But uh, Trine kept it on the ground for, for a good portion of the game. Uh, Evan Wise ran for 191 yards, three touchdowns, and uh, threw for 162 yards in another score. Um, it was, a, as you mentioned, a back-and-forth game for, uh, for quite a while, and then Trine scored the final 35. So if you were one of those folks who was focusing on another game and then just peeking in on that score, uh, it seemed like it was going to go the way of Wartburg Franklin and then uh, all of a sudden try and really, uh, really pull the way. Yeah. And that is Trine's MO in terms of uh, focusing on running the ball. Uh, you know, in this case, what are we talking about? 57 plays on offense. They threw the ball 11 times. That's been successful for them in a lot of games this season. Now they're going to be stepping up though, as we uh, turn our focus to the second round game. They, for Trine, they get kind of to get their feet wet a little bit in this tournament. They've played basically MIAA and uh, NAC teams, NACC teams. Uh, they maybe move a, a slight step up to face the champion of the Midwest Conference, and then they avoid facing a, a CCIW or a WIAC team or an MIAC team out of this part of the country either, and they get the Iowa Conference champion. If they advance, then they have to face a real powerhouse in the quarterfinals, but the Trying for a program that hasn't been in the playoffs since 2010 is really getting eased into it here because of how this bracket is built. Yeah, I mean, some teams like Harden-Simmons and St. John's got a, a really rough draw, and some teams got a, a draw that they can work with. Uh, Frostburg State, we mentioned, is one of them. That's a team that could uh, could play three games. I think Trine probably could could play three games in, in this tournament. Don't think they'll get past the, uh, the, the North Central Oshkosh winner, but think they have a chance against Wartburg, especially uh, if you're just doing the conference comparison thing and, and you look at Wartburg uh, basically needing to defend a, a two-point conversion, a game they easily could have lost against Franklin, the champion of the, the Heartland. Certainly the, the champ of the MIAA should should be able to, to do about what the, the champion of the Heartland do. So I know that's um, kind of the esoteric stuff that we specialize in on our podcast. Uh, comparing conferences and instead of just looking at how the two actual teams match up. But um, uh, I think you got to give Trine a, a, a chance to win this week. Moving on to the bottom right-hand bracket, the Delaware Valley bracket. A uh, couple of games that were not competitive and not surprising that they weren't competitive, but uh, a couple of surprises, one in the result and one in the kind of way that the expected result happened. Yeah, it, it Really just took a while for Wesley to dispense with RPI, and I don't think it was any shock that they finally did sort of overwhelm them with their, uh, with their really their athletic advantage. Wesley just has so many weapons, and when he can figure out how to get the ball to those guys because the offense is so creative and has been for years, uh, it's just a tough team to defend for 60 minutes. But I, I think the surprise in this bracket was clearly the uh, – the, the, um, the Husson game. Husson uh, really controlling the third quarter uh, against Springfield and, uh, and and using its running game to offset the, the Springfield running game. Um, 
And then the margin, I think, in the, the Brockport game was surprising to some. Uh, it was 66-0 against Plymouth State, and uh, both uh, both uh, Golden Eagles and Delaware Valley won big. But the Aggies might actually be the bigger winner out of round one since they face Husson and not Wesley in round two. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, it's You're facing a team with one primary running back and and John Smith was definitely primary running back on Saturday 43 carries 164 yards and they really dominated the time of possession Husson did against uh, Springfield which is a, a team that's accustomed to having its offense on the field for quite uh, an amount of time uh, so Delaware Valley has a doesn't have to prepare for triple option which you don't really see in their conference I can't think of a triple option team in the MAC. Um, and Wesley, who they faced in non-conference, was not that either. But uh, the uh, the Delval game, interesting, uh, winning 35 nothing with only eight first downs because you have a 50-yard punt return, a 100-yard pick six, a 62-yard pass for a touchdown. That's one of those places where the statistics were uh, misleading. Yeah, and and it's also one of those places where they go uh, a step up in, in – or you're expecting them to have a step up in competition – from week one to week two, from going from Western New England to you think they're going to be playing an 11-0 and Springfield team. And now they're playing Husson, which, again, you mentioned John Smith, obviously a guy who's been on uh, the D3 radar for, for three seasons now, uh, maybe maybe four seasons. Um, and, and a guy, clearly, uh, the Eagles are, are willing to ride with uh, 43 carries, as you mentioned. Um, but DelVal had an issue with, with its running back uh, on Saturday, again, with the, the spate of running back injuries. Um, he did play a little bit, but I, I don't believe he played the uh, the whole game. I didn't get a chance to watch as much DelVal as uh, as I did Brockport. I watched a lot of Brockport and a lot of Springfield Hudson. Yeah, Devontae Ellis, one carry. Uh, Khalil Roan, the freshman backup, got most of the most of the most of the work there. Deshaun Darden, the quarterback, we wrote about him on the site. You can find him in Around the East if you go digging a little bit for this past week's column. Coming up next week, Wesley at Brockport. That should be a fantastic game. Uh, and Husson at Delaware Valley. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the big takeaway from the Brockport game was that uh, Joe Germaniero played. He looked great. He was mobile. Um, when he had to, to to buy himself some time and, and move laterally to throw, he was able to do that. He had touch on his passes. If anything, maybe they, they looked like they were sailing a little high, but his receivers went up and got him. Uh, the offense was explosive. You know, they turned slants into touchdowns. That It was that type of offense, and it was that type of day. Clearly, Brockport probably a step faster than your uh, than Plymouth State, but and that may not be the case against Wesley. Uh, but I do think Wesley's defense will have its handful. Um, yeah, and then you know, going back to that Wesley game, I, I think it was it was uh, it was twenty seven twenty four um, RPI leading early in the second half, and then Wesley uh, turned it on twenty eight seven second half and using that superior athleticism to pull away. So both Brockport and Wesley, I think, had the advantage in in talent and. Uh, use it to their advantage on Saturday. I don't think either team will have a clear or a huge, uh, wow, we're just clearly better than these guys on Saturday. And so it will have to be uh, one team you know, to play its best game of the season. Wesley's defense had been great for a good portion of the season. Don't think that was uh, the case for most of the RPI game. So you, you wonder how Brockport coming off a 66-point game, how they'll fare offensively against Wesley's defense. 
Here's a thought of mine. Are we still doing the not announcing game sites till Sunday afternoon thing? Why again? I mean, I guess you and I should appreciate the mild spike in return traffic because folks have to come back and check where the game is definitely going to be. But uh, I don't know yet where next week's playoff game will be played is a terrible rebuttal to the idea that D3 is low class and lower quality. Yeah, this is about... I think this is about making sure nothing questionable or crazy happened at each home site, which is really an unnecessary cover-your-ass scenario by the committee here. Yeah, like what, what kind of what crazy thing could happen? Did you suddenly lose 2,000 uh, seats capacity and accessible bathrooms? How about we announce the seeds and sites and adjust in case of emergency instead of the other way around? It's a minor annoyance, but an annoyance nonetheless. And uh, let, let's, uh, I guess we'll, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe field conditions or crowd control issues could be legitimate reasons to pull a hosting bid midstream, but uh, who the hell has grass anymore? Literally one of the 32 playoff teams played on grass this season, and that was that was Plymouth State. They are, are not a danger to host. Ooh, I nailed that. I, was, I, I knew it off top. <laughs> I mean, who's the team that you... Yeah, exactly. Least expect, or I, you know, you're in New Hampshire. I would think uh, the growing season might suggest turf. You remember when the you remember when the committee tried to tell us that there were no seeds for the tournament, and there had never been seeds for the tournament. Remember that it was like 2010, 2009, something like that. I do remember. And then I pulled out an email out of my uh, out of my uh, hoarding of email and sent back when the previous uh, NCAA administrator had sent us all the seeds. I also remember that. Good times, good times. Those seeds exist. We all know that those seeds exist. Just cop to it. Tell us what the heck's going on. I, what I've always wanted to do, and I, I probably should have done it this week, would have been a perfect week to do it, um, the first week of the playoffs, is track what the flight would have been if you could have booked it Saturday night, say, to go from Atlanta to Minneapolis, rather than and having to wait until Sunday morning to do it when you no longer have a seven-day advance fare. How much are we costing people? One of the that's one of the big annoyances. Uh, not that there are thousands and thousands of people traveling to these games, but for the the, the parents and the diehard fans who've been following all season, it would be nice to still get the seven day advance fare. I, I agree. And it's not like they're not deciding until Sunday morning. They're just not telling us till Sunday morning. So, um, I mean, I, I'm sure there's boxes they have to check and. Uh, yeah whatever eyes to dot but uh but it, it this could that could, that's one thing that could be done better and I, now we've taken our brief thought oh <laughs> i've Go referred ahead. to this as the nca ratifying their decision because we all know the decision was already made and now they're just making it official or bothering to say it out loud so uh, other quick things we should touch on in this section there were uh, bowl games this weekend in new york and new england and in delaware uh, hosted by the ecac and uh, to be honest, it was uh, it's hard for us to pay a lot of attention to those games uh, when there are 16 playoff games going on and, and you want to watch each one of those. Um, occasionally, amazing things happen in these bowl games. I'm thinking of actually the time Brockport scored 70. Yeah. and uh, Against Hartwick, right? Yeah, the guy ran for like 468 yards or something like that. Um, or, or the game was 70-68. Was that, was that the, why it was noteworthy? That, that was a thing, yeah. That happened. In any case, 
it is pretty cool for for teams that had pretty good seasons, seven and three, six and four, to get a chance to play once more. It's sort of one of those weird imbalances in D three where the Northeast has embraced it. Don't really have any bowl games in the Midwest that I can think of. Come do it, guys. Uh, this this is available. You should do it. And you know, a lot of tons of schools in driving distance in the Midwest probably could pull it off in the mid-atlantic less so in the south and it wouldn't work at all really uh with just the 16 teams on the west coast but um it is i guess we should acknowledge that it happened it is a pretty cool experience for those teams they get to have one more week of practice and then play one more game all together if you haven't seen anything about it take a look at the uh all the penalties and the crazy kickoff that ensued in the Ithaca Salisbury game, uh, the one of the ECAC uh, games on Saturday night. Uh, it's also a time of the year for a coaching carousel, coaching's uh, coaching changes, coaches losing their jobs. Um, uh, Scott Westering out at Pacific Lutheran. Uh, it was described as a resignation. Um, we have been uh, we've heard from many people that that's not an accurate description. Uh, either way the end of the long uh, era of Westering head coaches at Pacific Lutheran is something we should not uh, go without noting. Yeah. I mean, Frosty uh, Westering was a legend and one of the, the greatest guys you'll ever get to meet. And uh, Scott was a, a great guy to us as well. Always easy to work with and, and, and helpful. Um, they did give him a pretty long leash though. And Pacific Lutheran went from being national championship caliber not just in 99, but they were pretty great for a couple seasons after that, to being kind of a, a middle team, occasionally would bubble up to seven wins uh, or, or so. Um, but that's, prob- that's probably, with the history of that program, it's probably one that um, could retain a lot of the uniqueness that every man loot and, and still win because it, it's an area where Linfield's done well, Whitworth has been to the playoffs, Willamette has had playoff seasons, um, and you just, you know, Pacific Lutheran just hasn't. If they wanted to hire somebody from within the PLU family, there are plenty of PLU grads, people who played for Frosty Westering, who are uh, still out there coaching in college football at the small college level that they could uh, certainly call on if they chose to do so. People somewhat surprised that uh, Kevin DeWall was out at uh, Endicott. Uh, it was, um, let's see, four years, three years two five and five seasons a three and seven this year and seemed like kind of a quick trigger after three years yeah i hope you're not uh, uh, expecting me to weigh in a lot on that one um <laughs> i do know that it happened that was another one where it was sort of cloudy whether it was a, a resignation or not it's one of those when it's a short when it's a short story and there's no quote from the coach you can pretty much assume similarly trey brown at uh, wilkes they were 0 10 this season in his fourth year uh greg piscadna is out at alma they slipped to uh, sixth in the MIAA this season, and they'll be looking for somebody else as well. There will be more, and we will cover all of those throughout the, the playoffs and into the offseason. Keep an eye on the coaching carousel on d3football.com. It is a little hard to find front page space for that right now, but uh, you can find it under our news menu, and we will keep it updated. Uh, Guardi Trophy uh, nominees were due to the office uh, in uh, Collegeville last week, last Wednesday. I hear there was a significant number of nominations, maybe more than double last year's. So we uh, kind of batted around some names as a staff ourselves of people who might be good candidates. 
Uh, I'll be interested to see. I think we find out either Monday or Tuesday who the final 10 are. That's traditionally when the list comes out, I believe. And I don't think there's a no-brainer candidate this year. And I also think uh, you may, you know, you won't have someone from Mount Union nominated. Um, and you may not have, um, trying to think, the other the other top programs. And they probably all, I'm going through them in my head. Sorry, this is not good listening right now. but uh, this is No, this uh, is great, Pod. Um, a lot of the players, I think, when we were coming up with our list, Keith, a lot of the players are defensive guys a lot of the top players and those are not people that usually resonate with a Heisman type committee and the Gillardi committee is in that case fairly similar yeah well what's interesting about a Gillardi trophy is that it has been won in the past by a tackle a strong safety um those are the only ones I can think of off an the top outside, of my head an outside linebacker right so I mean it, it can be done certainly if you're an impressive uh great player uh and then you have an, an impressive uh off the field resume, you can win the committee over, but the committee is made up of some guys like Pat and myself who watch D3 games all season, and then other folks who have a more tenuous connection to D3 who are wowed by great quarterback numbers or great running back numbers, just like um, most uh, voters would be. And, and not saying that we're not wowed by those things as well. We've all voted for Justin Beaver and Kevin Burke in, in our day as well. So um, sometimes the best player is a quarterback or running back, but I do like that the Gallardi Trophy uh, does consider the the well-roundedness of the player and also the, the well-roundedness of a football roster. So keep an eye out for that this week. Um, if you're traveling this week, either for football or for Turkey or for both, travel safely. Enjoy yourself. Uh, take a day off if you have the opportunity to take a day off. If you're like us, I think might even take Thursday off myself um, from the website, other than keeping an eye on all you crazy people on the message board, because this was Around the Nation podcast number 185 for the week of November 20th, 2017. Thanks for listening and uh, keep an eye out for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, please rate it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., wherever you get your podcast, because that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and all this music underlaying it is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com, M-E-N-T-O-S. Audio this week, thanks to D3Sports.com's Adam Turr, Jason Bowen, and the athletic departments at Barry, Illinois Wesleyan, and Wartburg. Thanks to all of them for their contribution to this edition of our show, and of course to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. You know how to spell Keith? It's K-E-I-T-H. If they have a message board devoted to Division Three sports, and you can join the conversation by registering with a legitimate email address to post at d3boards.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. So we'll have all sorts of new content this week. We'll have feature stories, and then we will get you ready for game coverage. We'll talk about those uh, Gallardi semifinalists, and then we'll have our quick hits on Friday, in which I am sure to not get 10 right next week because... There are only eight games. I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say I would be sure not to get six wrong. And I'm not sure now, that's you true. You cannot guarantee that. Although he's pretty safe bet. I think you can def- I think you got four and four locked up. <laughs>